Last week, we started Lent by facing a reality. The world around us is broken. It doesn't matter how we look at it. It doesn't matter the many places we see hope. There's so many other places where there's darkness and despair. And what we saw last week is that this is the result of human rebellion. That we as humans have chosen our own way to be our own gods instead of looking to God as our maker and the one who leads us. Now Lent is the season when we look at that darkness, when we think about it, when we enter into it, when we realize and contemplate how we play a part in that brokenness. How we add to the chaos in the world. But Lent isn't only about that darkness. It's about looking at the light that's coming at the end. It's about anticipating that that light is coming. But before we get to the light of Easter morning, we have to go through the darkness. And that darkness that we go through makes the light so much better. But as part of Lent is beginning to tell this story, beginning to reflect on how God said, I will make things right in spite of human rebellion. And last week, the way we saw that was through this story of Jesus, that Jesus entered into the world and he resisted the temptation that none of us could resist to be our own gods and to walk away from God's desire and will for us. And Jesus said yes when the rest of us have always said no. And because of that, we were offered this life through Jesus that we don't deserve and that we could never have without him. Now today we get to look again at this idea of, well, how does God make things right with human rebellion? And today we look from a different angle. It's not about what Jesus did in his life, but it's about what he came to be. And to do that today, we look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So if you want to look on the screen or follow along in your Bible, on the Pew Bible or your own Bible, John 3, 1 through 17 is on page 15, 12 in here. It will be on the screen. And we're going to be taking a look at this story. But before we get to the story of John, we have to have a little bit of background. We have to lay the foundation. And that's what this passage from Genesis is all about. It's about laying for us the foundation. So this is how Genesis 1 starts, or Genesis 12, I'm sorry. The Lord, God, the Lord said to Abraham, or to Abram, he's not Abraham yet, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land where I will show you. What we need to understand is, minus the story of Jesus, Genesis chapter 12 is the biggest transition in all the story of the Bible. It's the biggest transition. Verse chapters 1 through 11, scholars call the primordial history. Now, that's a fancy word they use. But basically, it's this story of humanity before the story of Abraham. And then in chapter 12, the story of Abraham enters into the biblical story. And then the story of Abraham and Abraham's family becomes the story that is the rest of the story of God's people. So this is a really important transition. Now what happens in Genesis chapter 11, which we, did, we haven't read, is Genesis chapter 11 is that famous story of that tower that they try to build into the sky. We often call it the Tower of Babel. 
because people's languages were mixed up and they babbled, so the wordplay fits in English. Now, it's actually the Tower of Babylon. And Babylon, in the biblical narrative, is this image of human rebellion against God as it's unified in uh, like a, a nation or a government or a, a place, a city. So that's what Babylon becomes. So God scatters all of his people out of Babylon because he says, if they remain united, they will destroy themselves. So he scatters them. But out of the scattered families comes the family of Abraham. And this is what God says to Abraham. He says, go from your country, your people, and your father's house to the land where I will show you. So this is the call of Abraham. God says, I want you to leave your family and your, your inheritance and everything that you know. And I want you to go to this land that I'm not even going to tell you about till you get there. So what this is for us is like the equivalence of us being told, sell everything you have and move all the way across the world. Pick your place, Africa, somewhere in Asia, somewhere in Europe even. Even if we would say South America. But this is the catch. You don't get to know where you're going and you're not gonna be able to talk to your family and the people you leave behind. Because you know, we have cell phones nowadays, we have FaceTime, all of the, whatever you wanna call or use to talk to people. We're very connected. Well, back then we're talking about Abraham was leaving and he was not gonna see people again. So that's the call. That's the call. It's like when people in this country's history decided to move west and they loaded up a wagon and they went. And they maybe wouldn't be to talk to any family members again in person. Maybe they could write letters, but there was no certainty of where they would end up. That's what, Jesus, or that's what God asks of Abraham. But he has a little bit more to work with. Abraham knows this. This is what God says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So there's a big risk, but there's also this big promise. Now, what we don't notice is it says right here, I will make you to a great nation. I will make your name great. Now, if you read the Tower of Babel, what do the people say? They say, let us build this tower to make our names great. And God says, you're not gonna make your name great without me. That'll be disastrous. So he scatters them. But now he says to Abraham, I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will bless all nations through you. Now there's gonna be some attachments to that later, but at this point, this is what Abraham knows. If he goes, there will be something worth going for. But still, imagine that. Even if you knew you could have an amazing life, moving somewhere where you didn't know, didn't know anybody, didn't, didn't know where you were gonna end up, that takes a massive commitment to get there. So this is Abraham, but Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. So he did take one person with him, uh, his family and Lot, his nephew. He goes. Now, what we need to understand is, as we said, Lent is also about focusing on God's work of saving our rebellion. And the way that God does that, all the way back in chapter 12 
of Genesis is through saying, okay, I'm scattering this group of people, but I'm going to pick one of them. And through that one, I'm going to bless the rest. All the way back in chapter 12, God says, I'm going to make things right. And this is my plan. I'm going to choose this one family and use them to bless all the nations. And so that's what he wants to do. So all the way at the beginning of the story, God has got this plan to make things right. So as we think about the brokenness in Lent, we know God has always wanted to make things right. He's always set out to do it. He's always had this plan that he's been working out to save us from ourselves. But the question becomes, well, how does this family from Abraham become the answer to our problems? And this is when the story of Jesus comes in. So this is what John tells us in John, John chapter 3, verse 1 about Jesus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus comes and we're told that he is this Pharisee, but also that he's a part of the ruling council. So he's a wealthy, powerful man. But he says, okay, I see something about Jesus that could be from God. So he's like, I'm going to investigate. I want to know more about this guy. So Nicodemus goes, and this is what Jesus says to him. So, that, so Nicodemus says, I can see that you're from God. And this is what Jesus' response is, verse 3. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So Jesus sees what Nicodemus is about. He sees that as a religious leader, Nicodemus thinks that he has the answers. He's got what the people need. But he wants to know about Jesus. Now Jesus comes and he surprises Nicodemus because he says, if you want to have a part in the kingdom, you have to be born again. Now Nicodemus is completely thrown off. He's like, I have no idea what this is about. And that's why he says, surely I cannot be born from my mother's womb a second time. So Jesus explains in verse 5. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, Nicodemus gets a little bit more information from Jesus. This new birth is about being born of water and spirit. Now, this becomes important later in the Christian story, right? We baptize people with water, but we talk about the Holy Spirit being present and being the one who saves them and marks them and seals them as the people of God. But in this place, Jesus is... Just setting the stage for what he really wants to tell Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus is still confused. So he says in verse 9, How can this be? Nicodemus asked. So Nicodemus wants to know, How can we be born of water and spirit? He doesn't understand. 
He's one of, one of the religious leaders of Israel. And he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, you speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So there's a couple things going on here. First, Jesus pushes against Nicodemus. He says, how can you not understand if you're one of, one of the wise teachers of Israel? And then he says, you can only know what you've experienced and where you've been. And Jesus says, I alone am the Son of Man, and I alone have gone to the Father and know these mysteries of the Father. So Jesus is creating this separation between himself and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, probably assuming that they're somehow peers, or maybe that Nicodemus might know more. But now Jesus says, no, 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 you don't know as much as you think. Now Jesus is talking about something that was new to the Jewish people. That was one reason they struggled so much to accept it. Because he wasn't teaching something they'd heard before. But that's because Jesus said, you need to understand what it takes to be part of the kingdom. And that's what he says right here. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so did the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, Nicodemus knew the story Jesus was talking about. Jesus talked about the snake lifted up. He knew exactly what was going on. For us, maybe you know, maybe you don't. But Numbers chapter 21, there's this story of Israel in the wilderness. They have these snakes that start to attack them, these venomous snakes. And so Moses cries out to God and he says, God, can you do something about these snakes? They're attacking and making people ill and people are dying. So this is what God does. He doesn't eliminate the snakes. He doesn't somehow protect the people. What he does is he tells Moses, I want you to take and make a bronze snake and put it on a pole in camp and tell anybody who gets bit to look at that snake. And he says, and they will be healed. And now what Jesus says is, the son of man has come to be lifted up and those who look at him and believe will have eternal life. So for Nicodemus, this is something that he has no concept about. This is completely new to him. Because what Jesus is saying is, just because you are a religious leader, it doesn't mean that you're a part of the kingdom. Everybody has to go through this rebirth or this conversion or this process of being remade into a new person to be part of the kingdom. And central to that is Jesus and the cross. And this is what John says. John adds this. This is an editorial comment. The most famous verse, I think, in all the Bible verses, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son 
that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In verse 17, the one that, that none of us know, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Probably an equally important verse from the first one. This brings it all together. Like the snake, Jesus comes to save. And the way that he's going to save is by being lifted up on the cross. This is the first time it's mentioned. And then later in a couple chapters, Jesus is more explicit. But right here, he foreshadows, something's going to happen to me, I'm going to be lifted up. And in that act, those who trust me still and believe will be the true people of God. And so for Nicodemus, this is a challenge because it talks, it comes down to belief or trust for eternal life. Not something that they can teach, not something you're born with, but trust. The blessings of the nation come through one family because Jesus is from that family, but it's not just for the family, it's for the whole world. So Abraham starts the story and that blessing comes through Jesus, that he will offer eternal life to any and all who believe in him. Now this brings us to an important impasse, a really important question. What do we need to do if we want to have that rebirth, if we want to be saved? What does it require? And this is where we have these words from Paul. And we're not even going to look at all of what Paul said today. Just a couple verses from this passage in John 4, or Romans 4. This is what he says in verse 13. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heirs of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. This is what we need to understand. Paul is talking to a Roman community that's divided. Now, the Romans will live in the city of Rome. In the city of Rome, all the Jews got sent out for a while. So there was Christians who were a part of, that were not Jews that lived in Rome. And eventually the, Rome, the Jews were able to come back. And so what we think is going on in Romans is the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians are fighting. And the Jewish Christians say, hey, we are sons of Abraham. We are sons and daughters of the promise. We heard in chapter 12, what comes along with that eventually is the law of Moses and, and the obedience to that law. They say, we have salvation. And Paul says, no, no, no. Salvation isn't about the law. The law shows you where you're wrong, but it doesn't save you. Instead, he says, Abraham wasn't saved through the law because Abraham didn't have the law. It didn't exist for a couple hundred more years. But what Abraham did have was trust. Therefore, verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. And this is the key. Not only those who are of the law, the Jews, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He's the father of us all, the rest of us. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we, he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Now, what Paul is saying is, it's not the law, it's not birthright, it's not any of that that makes you worthy. 
What makes you worthy is faith. Now, faith is a hard word. What does it mean? The beginning of faith is trust. Now, we're not going to do this. If I were really wanting to drive the point home, I probably would do it. But have you ever done one of those trust falls? So, you know, you stand there with your arms out and you have a partner and, and you're supposed to just fall back and trust that they'll catch you. So what that comes down to is you have faith or you trust that that person will catch you. And if you have a friend who wants to be unkind, they will let you fall. So if you did that in high school, you probably weren't going to trust your friend because they most likely were going to let you fall. So you didn't actually have faith in them. You didn't actually trust that they would do what they said they were going to do. When it comes down to faith in God, when it was Abraham's decision to go to the land, all he could bank on was trusting that God would do what he said he would do. And he did trust. And that was the moment when he was delivered. And Paul sees that and he says, that's the moment. That's what's asked of us. Do we actually trust God? So when it comes down to this, God offers the life that we, that we couldn't live on our own. When it's God's way or our way, what it comes down to is, do we actually trust that God's way might be better than our way? And this is always a challenge whenever we look at the world. Because the world wants to tell us that God's way isn't the right way. And if you are anywhere in the public square in today's world, the way of God is challenged on multiple fronts. We don't want to think that God might know what's best for us. We want to do it on our own. But what we need to recognize is that the trust that we need to do and give is the trust that God knows what's best. And that trust comes through believing what Jesus has done on the cross. Now for Nicodemus, that was a huge, huge point that he needed to get over. And for all of the Jewish people, that was a huge point because they thought their Messiah would come to save them. Not that their Messiah would come and be executed and then resurrected. That was a massive change for them. And one reason that most of the Jewish people could not accept Jesus, it was so not what they expected. And Jesus says, that's the one thing you want to do, or that's the one thing you need to do if you're going to be the people of God. You have to trust that I did die and I did resurrect for you. And that's what it comes down to. And when we trust in Jesus, that's when we are saved. So the question becomes, what does it take to be saved? Trust in Jesus to be saved. That's all it is. Trust in Jesus to be saved. Trust in Jesus. It's that simple. But I know it's not that simple. Because there is fear in a life so much different than the one that maybe we enjoy or the one we know. There's so much fear in knowing what we might have to go through to get to this life. I understand that. I understand that there's levels of brokenness in all of our lives that sometimes we don't even want to look at. Now we can trust Jesus and not go there, but if we want the life that he promises, you have to go there. To walk right through the middle of it. And it's terrifying. 
But Jesus says, you will be saved. And I do want to be clear that for some of us, we can't go there. But Jesus meets us where we are at. And it starts with that moment of trust. Do we trust that he is who he said he is? Trust in Jesus to be saved. So as we reflect on the darkness of Lent, we know that salvation is coming. And we know it's coming through Jesus. But long before Jesus, there was Abraham and his family and the trust that he had in God. And that begins the story, the story that God says, I will bless all nations through you. And Abraham believed that. He trusted God. And the story meets its highest point in Jesus. When Jesus says, look at me and you will be saved. So that's what John wants us to see. It all comes to Jesus, and then Paul wants us to see that with Jesus, it's all about our faith or our trust. Trust in Jesus to be saved. We're not to the light yet. We have these moments of Holy Week that are coming, specifically when Jesus is arrested and crucified on Good Friday. Before we get to celebrate, we have to go through that moment on Good Friday. So the darkness still looms, and as the darkness looms, we realize that it's because of our rebellion. But just like the Israelites who had those snakes in the wilderness, all they had to do was look and believe, which is a lot harder than the snakes being prevented or there being some sort of medication. All you have to do is look and believe. How many people do you think couldn't believe, didn't trust the snake, so they didn't look? That's what we're called to do, to look and trust. And when we trust, we will be saved because when we trust in Jesus, we are saved.